The following podcast contains explicit language. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who said God looked down and said, I will not let it rain on your inauguration, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So here's something that occurred to me over the crazy first weekend of the Trump presidency. The fundamental problem in covering the Trump administration isn't going to be separating the facts from Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts. The hard part is going to be avoiding getting distracted by the things that don't ultimately matter. The behavior of Donald Trump and his propagandists is going to be comprehensively outrageous and outlandish. They're going to lie about everything. So the challenge for the press and for people listening to this podcast is going to be separating the wheat from the chaff, the signal from the noise. Signal is the investigations underway into the possible ties between Trump's campaign, the Kremlin, and the DNC hack. Noise is the debate about whether it was right for BuzzFeed to publish the dossier containing a lot of unverified allegations about the connection. Signal is Trump's egregious conflicts of interest, his failure to do even the little he promised to separate himself from his businesses, and the massive corruption to come. Noise is the self-aggrandizing speech he gave at the CIA. Noise is the lies Trump and his press secretary told about the size of the crowd on the mall. The signal is Trump's inaugural address itself, declaring a protectionist trade policy and an isolationist foreign policy to defend against the ravages of other nations. And that's what I'm going to talk about today with Fareed Zakaria of CNN. But first, an announcement before we get started. Trumpcast is having a live show in Washington, D.C. on Monday, February 6th. I'll be there with Jamel Bowie and Virginia Heffernan, who you've heard many times on this program. It's at the Hamilton Theater at 7.30, and you can find tickets at slate.com slash live. Please join us on February 6th. And now, the tweets. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. From this moment on, it's going to be America first. We will bring back our jobs. We will bring back our borders. We will bring back our wealth. And we will bring back our dreams. A fantastic day and evening in Washington, D.C. Thank you to Fox News and so many other news outlets for the great reviews of the speech. Had a great meeting at CIA headquarters yesterday. Packed the house. Paid great respect to the wall. Long-standing ovations. Amazing people win watched protests yesterday, but was under the impression that we just had an election. Why didn't these people vote? Celebs hurt cause badly. 
Wow. Television ratings just out. 31 million people watched the inauguration. 11 million more than the very good ratings from four years ago. My guest today is Fareed Zakaria. He's the host of Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN. He's a columnist for The Washington Post and the author of several books, including The Future of Freedom and the Post-American World. Fareed, welcome to Trumpcast. Pleasure to do this. So we've all been uh, distracted uh, the last couple of days about the debates about the crowd size of the inauguration, etc. But I want to come back to Trump's inaugural address itself because I thought it was just an amazing, unprecedented statement by a president about foreign policy. Did you agree? Was it it out of the ordinary? Yeah, I thought it was unprecedented in two ways, Jacob. It was unprecedented in its really stark pessimism. I think that it's difficult to recall another president who's ever done that. I mean, in the midst of the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt says, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. At the end of the Civil War, you know, the bloodiest battle in American history, one of the bloodiest battles of all time. Lincoln talks about with malice toward none and charity to all, let's let's bind together the nation's wounds. At 4.7% unemployment, Donald Trump talks about American carnage. So that was striking to me. And the second, as you say, was certainly not, you know, not in 75 years have you heard an American president essentially reject the idea that America has a special role in maintaining global peace. This was really an idea that Franklin Roosevelt came up with in the in the midst of World War II, which was that the United States, because of its enormous power, was going to be the leading country shaping the world. And I don't believe we have ever had a president since Roosevelt who has who has renounced that mission. And in a sense, Trump was not quite renouncing it, but sharply curtailing it. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously huge disagreements on foreign policy among realists, neoconservatives, liberal internationalists. But there are a few things they usually agree on. One is that security alliances are a good thing and benefit the United States. Another is that democracy is better than autocracy in other countries. And a third one is that there are benefits from trade, even if there are excesses and issues around globalization. Trump seems to challenge all of those things, right? Yeah, exactly. As you say, with the alliances, you know, that is really, again, a repudiation of of the Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Eisenhower vision of of the world. Um, And the trade thing, yeah, it's very important to remember that these ideas of America born out of the experience of the of the 30s of the, of the ruinous protectionism of, of World War II and Trump is instead saying no protection is good i was struck by the fact that clearly very consciously he or whoever wrote the speech for him said protection is good when we you know when we are protected it means we will be rich and we will be prosperous it was very much it struck me a kind of uh, direct repudiation of the idea of the celebration of openness and and trade. And of course, what's important to remember is free trade is free markets. I mean, when when David Ricardo and all the great Scottish Enlightenment thinkers came, you know started articulating ideas about free trade, they meant trade, but among cities as well as countries, they they were just saying 
the more open a society is, the more open the economy is, the more you'll prosper because you can have specialization. So in a, in a striking way, it's actually anti-free market. I mean, you wrote about this in your column this week. What would happen in a world in which the United States closed itself off to international trade and just cultivated its internal market? I mean, would there be better paying jobs? Would we have more jobs? What would the consequences be? Well, the ultimate consequence, it seems to me, is very clear because I grew up in such a country. The India I grew up in very much adhered to Trumponomics, which is import substitution, high tariff walls. And the whole idea was India needed to create its own industry. It needed to have its own jobs that when you had had foreign investment, uh, it had been, you know, and remember, India was colonized not by a a country, but by a multinational corporation, the British East India Company. And so there was a very strong consensus around it. And it was a disaster. What you ended up with was a a sheltered group of, of industries that were totally sclerotic, totally dysfunctional, did not in any way benchmark to, you know, to international standards. And you got decay and stagnation and enormous political corruption. Because when you have a closed system, the most important thing about getting rich was who did you know? Who do you know? You know, I kind of have struck by that because, you know, when I grew up in India, the way you had rich was you, you met with politicians, you did deals with them. The thing about coming to America was, you didn't need to know anyone. I remember once talking to a businessman uh, in America when I was an undergraduate, and he was saying, I said to him, do you know the, the governor? I think the governor was speaking there. He said, I don't know the governor. I don't know the mayor. I don't know a congressman. I don't know a senator. And I don't need to. I just do my business. Well, Trump represented an odd way a return to that. You know, when I see this parade of CEOs coming and kissing the ring and promising to invest, it very much reminds me of the closed uh, protectionist economy I grew up in, where political connections were the key to business success. With a particular kind of uncertainty that if you don't kiss up to him in the right way, he may come and kill you on Twitter. That is, he may <laughs> exactly. he may do something that really harms your company, saying because you did something he didn't like with lo- locating a factory somewhere or having created the jobs he wants. He will attack you in a way that can cause your stock to collapse in the in the hour after his tweet. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, you know, he says the two rules we should follow are buy American and hire American. And it's worth pointing out, of course, if other countries adopt those rules, who's going to buy American exports? <laughs> you know, if, if everyone says we're just going to buy you know, our country stuff and hire our country's people, I mean, it sounds nice, but you, you do have to remember you know, most of America's largest companies depend vitally on exports. A com- company like General Electric is, I think, 50% of its revenues come from other people buying, you know, com- goods that are not from their country. All right. Well, never mind that. He said we're going to protect our borders from the ravages of other countries stealing our jobs and stealing our companies. And he said, and this was the thing that really struck me, he said the new vision is from this day forward, it's going to be America first, America first. Now, as someone who studied the history of American foreign policy, that phrase has some re- uh, some resonances. What is America first? Well, first of all, tell me a little bit about the America first movement historically and whether you think he has any idea what that was and what it means to use that phrase. America first was a group uh, created in 1940. Its sole uh, mission was to keep America out of the war. And remember, this is 1940. This is after Kristallnacht. This is after the invasion of Poland. This is at a point where it is pretty clear that Adolf Hitler is a fascist, uh, a racist, a a, a virulent anti-Semite. 
And he's invading several European countries in a way that seemed very, very dangerous to world peace. The America First Committee was not only deeply isolationist, there were there was no question there were strong elements of anti-Semitism. Um, Charles Lindbergh, you know, the great American flyer and hero, very pointedly said in a kind of really shocking uh, speech, the people who are advocating for the America's involvement in World War II are, are often Jews, and they should keep in mind that if we go down this path, basically there will be a huge outburst of anti-Semitism because people will feel we were pushed into this war by Jews, and you know, do they really want to go through that? It was a, it was really shocking, and and so it has always had these connotations of having been wrong on one of the most important national security issues that face the United States, but also of having really uh, had these kind of anti-Semitic uh, undertones to it. Does Trump realize any of this? I, I think yeah, you know the answer. We know, and we know where he got the phrase. I mean, it's, it's really almost comical. David Sanger of the New York Times was interviewing him and asked him if he was an isolationist, and he said, no, I don't think I'm an isolationist. He said, then do you think of yourself as, as a person who believes in America first, that idea of America first? And he said, yeah, I like that phrase. <laughs> I like that phrase. Um, now, the people around him, like Steve Bannon, certainly know uh, where it comes from. And the fact that now, having used it a few times, he doubled down on it and seems completely unconcerned with that history of, of isolationism, protectionism, and anti-Semitism is a little worrying. It's one thing to use it for a while, but then when somebody brings your attention, you know, this has these undertones. You know, if his feeling was, well, I don't care, it's, it strikes me as a little buzzling and, you know, like many of the things he is worrying because you could have come up with another phrase, surely. Did you really have to use one that has <laughs> associations with anti-Semitism? Yeah, he doesn't care. But, but when the question is the isolationist policy at the heart of that movement and the heart of that history, this inaugural address was entirely in line with it. He said, essentially, other countries should look after themselves. We're sick of subsidizing their armies. And if we're going to spend money on the military, it should be our military, not a military alliance with someone else. What was striking to me about it, it seemed to not recognize that the United States has benefited enormously from this policy of engagement in the world. We have had a world at peace. We have had a world that has largely been constructed along kind of Anglo-American lines, American uh, lines, and that, that has been enormously beneficial to the American workers, to American consumers. You know, if you think about it, the period 1945 to, to today is not exactly a period of great American decline. It's a period in which the United States has dominated the world economically, politically, culturally. I understand that there are issues, particularly in the last 20 years, that certain segment of America has not shared in that prosperity. And by the way, that has something to do with American domestic policy as well, our, our disinclination you know, to have a kind of tax and investment policy that could, could change that. But if you look at it in the broad sweep of history, there are very few countries that have prospered as much over the last 60 or 70 years as the United States. Let's talk a little bit about what this means in relation to China. I mean, there have been three big steps that have been pretty worrying from the point of view of having a having a peaceful relationship with China. One is 
Trump seems to want to use the one China policy, the idea that Taiwan is not ultimately a separate country as a bargaining chip in trade negotiations. Another is that he has no interest in the TPP, which is the way we have cultivated alliances or we're intending to cultivate long-term alliances through trade in East Asia. And uh, the last one was Rex Tillerson's comments in his confirmation hearings about these islands in the Pacific that China uses as military installations, saying we don't recognize those and suggesting that there might be conflict around them. What did you make of what have you made of all of that? You know, here I'm trying to be uh, I'm trying to adopt the, the, the position that not everything Trump does is, is it has to be treated as prima facie wrong. Uh, and to be open to the fact that you know to try and really evaluate things independently and and in a fair and balanced way to coin, coin a phrase. So I think the stuff on Taiwan doesn't bother me that much. It has always struck me as a little bizarre that here is a you know liberal democracy, an extraordinary liberal democracy, that we have almost no relations with, despite the fact that they have been staunchly pro-American from their from their beginning of their existence. So. Secondly, I do think China has in many ways been a bit of something of a cheater on trade in various ways, and we can get into that. And and so having some leverage with them makes sense, and Taiwan is the ultimate leverage. They're clearly very, very worried about that. So I'm not so worried about what he did with Taiwan, but when we get to the other things, what strikes me about it is it seems to have been some kind of weird emotional outburst, perhaps engineered by Bob Dole's lobbying firm, rather than part of some kind of larger strategy that has decided, okay, we're going to put some pressure on China. Here are the tools we're going to use. Here is what we want. Here is what we are willing to give. You know, that doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like part of a strategy. It feels like a series of strange kind of emotional outbursts. And and the, the Tillerson similarly, the comment is a little weird. It's fine to be tough on China on that, but to, equated to Russia's annexation of Crimea and essential de facto annexation of eastern Ukraine or de facto troublemaking in eastern Ukraine is weird because there is a big difference. Actually, there are people in Ukraine. <laughs> Nobody are, lives on these islands. They're like rocks. Right. Yeah. To, to build a large you know, platform in the middle of the sea is not the same as actually annexing millions of people's land and governing them. That's called imperialism and annexation and occupation. So the whole thing felt a little half-baked. You know, Tillerson obviously is a bright, competent guy, but the hearings, that he didn't reveal a deep understanding of foreign policy. And so it's part of that more than that I worry that he's being particularly anti-Chinese. I think being you know, being tough-minded with the Chinese is fine. And using the Taiwan card, uh, you know, I think is, again, it, it might be appropriate. Is there a little bit of madman theory here? I mean, that's the phrase associated with Richard Nixon, not that he was actually mad, but that in Vietnam negotiations, his willingness to be as, be maximally extreme, contemplate the use of nuclear weapons, was thought to be an effective negotiating tactic. The Russian, uh, the Chinese, the one thing they they won't give up is the status of Taiwan. So maybe if they're worried that we're really going to recognize Taiwan, they do make trade negotiations. Can you, is that, is that maybe his strategy here? Yeah, you know, I think that's an area where you'd have to give him um, some credit, which is he's a good negotiator. And you can tell that his strategy in negotiating is to, is to begin in kind of an outlandish place. When I, I was in Beijing two weeks ago, and 
this is very much what they assume. They assume that he's putting out this stuff, uh, that these are opening bids in a negotiation. They were pretty comfortable with everything. They were certainly very comfortable on the trade issue. They, they pointed out that, you know, look, the United States has had trade negotiations like this with Japan in the 1980s under the Reagan administration. And, you know, Japan was an ally and, and used very tough rhetoric about the Japanese. But, you know, it was all in service of coming to a deal, and we're happy to come to deal. Taiwan, they were somewhat rattled by. They said something really interesting to me, which was, if he continues along those lines, and it's not just rhetoric, we will react, but we will make Taiwan pay, not the United States. Uh, we will squeeze Taiwan, and we will. the strategy will be to get Taiwan to say to, to Washington, to Trump, please stop. You're, you're screwing up our lives. You're making your life very difficult for us which is, you know, frankly, a very smart strategy for the Chinese to adopt. If it doesn't lead to an actual military conflict. Yeah, I mean, the big question you have, one has about Trump, I have to, con you know, confess, is at least the one that I worry about the most, uh, other than the kind of degradation of democratic norms, which is a whole separate issue, um, which, you know, it, you know, see the first press conf conference of uh, uh, Sean Spicer. But the thing I worry about is a foreign policy crisis, because... Trump does not seem to have the temperament to handle these well, and to put it to put it in an understated way. And this is something that, you know, frankly, when when Bob Gates um, came out against Trump, that was the, no, the number one thing he said. In fact, it was the only thing he said. And I think it. You look at Trump; he's emotional, he's vengeful, he can't let go of stuff. You know, he reacts entirely from his gut. Really does. You know, clearly does not believe in Dan, Daniel Kahneman's slow thinking. <laughs> and. You know, that's all worrying. I mean, sometimes you can get stuff right, but, you know, a lot of times in foreign policy, you really want to slow things down because the danger is that it's very hard to back down from something you've done because that's an enormous loss of face. So it's that first move that becomes very important because if it doesn't work, you are then faced with a horrible dilemma. Do you admit failure or do you double down? And historically, countries have tended to double down. I mean, Vietnam is basically a story of three decades of having made that initial decision that Vietnam was crucial to American interests, and then nobody could back down. And so you just kept pouring more and more resources and people into it. React, react, escalate, escalate. Yeah. And, and even though kind of nobody really thought of Les Gelb has a wonderful book on this called The Irony of Vietnam, the system worked, by which he means nobody really thought they could win but nobody could really bring themselves to back down once it had been determined that that this was important. So you kind of kept you kept react, you kept throwing a few more resources and hoping you'd get lucky. For Fred, what does Trump's great power world look like? I mean, if you're as hostile as he is to China, usually that goes with being friendlier to India, and he does seem to be maybe potentially friendlier to India. He's super friendly to Russia, something that we haven't really figured out. It's bizarre. It's the only really consistent thread in his foreign policy thinking is friendliness to Vladimir Putin. He has kind of unsophisticated but very aggressive views towards both Iran and ISIS, which, of course, are, are not allies with each other. I mean, what is the, you know, what, what is the world at the end of a Trump term look like in terms of who our friends and who our enemies are? Put it this way. Most of it is fairly understandable with one great exception. So he's essentially a Jacksonian. And a Jacksonian means somebody who 
believes that the United States should be strong, should be willing to exact enormous uh, uh, punishments on countries that, that wrong us in some way, but basically distrusts the world. So his view of the world is the Europeans, uh, or, you know, screw us in terms of not paying their fair share and free ride. The Japanese have been being terrible on trade and they're bad allies. Same with the South Koreans. They don't pay their fair share. Both those things are largely factually in, 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 inaccurate, but never mind. Uh, Muslims, we know what he thinks about. He said Saudi Arabia wouldn't even exist if not for America. China, he says, has been raping us. The only country he has consistently been nice about is Russia. And it's a it's a puzzle to me, honestly. I mean, I, I I wouldn't want to say you know much more than that, but that it is a very strange exception. He basically doesn't like any country except Russia, and he's been very consistent about that. And I can't quite figure it out because there's no certainly there's no strategic worldview that makes sense in that regard. There's no political advantage to being pro-Russia. Uh, I mean, he also says nice things about Israel. So let's say there's two countries. But with Israel, you can understand it. You know, he has a familial tie. Uh, maybe he sees them as an embattled democracy. Uh, and there's an enormous benefits, particularly for a right-of-center candidate to be pro-Israel. There's no pro-Putin constituency in the Republican Party. I mean, if there is, it's like a tiny fringe alt-right movement. But you look at the senators in the Republican Party, you look at the congressmen, you look at Paul Ryan, they're all very distrustful of Putin. The, the previous Republican nominee's convention speech, Mitt Romney's convention speech, foreign policy uh, uh, section was basically just Russia is the number one foe of the United States. <laughs> and so, so this is, it's just a, it's a puzzle. And it does lead people to wonder, you know, is there something going on here that doesn't meet the eye? But one way to explain it without uh, the possibility of blackmail with pictures of teenage girls or whatever it is, is that he simply admires that model of power and and Putin as a holder of power. I mean, if, if you believe in autocracy, Putin represents a certain kind of autocracy very effectively. And in terms of uh, corporatism and crony capitalism and the way he does business and relates to business, it sort of looks like what Trump aspires to. Yeah, I think that that's certainly a possibility. And I think it, it's also possible, you know, with Trump, everything is about him. And Putin, you know, may have said something nice about him, and and that could influence it. But what you're describing was Berlusconi's fascination with, with Putin. It was very similar, I think. Berlusconi saw him as a strong man, you know, these relationships with oligarchs, this connection between politics and business. Uh, and and was fascinated by him and thought again that he had a personal connection because they were both, uh, you know, kind of uh, of, of the same milk. Maybe Trump sees that as well, and maybe that's all there is to it. For the phrase you are most closely associated with in foreign policy is a liberal democracy, which was the subtitle of your first book. I think you were writing, of course, about a movement outside the United States. Do you think now we should be thinking about the risk of illiberal democracy in the United States, and what would that mean? I do. I mean, if you think about what illiberal democracy really means, is that democracy is, has two parts to it. One is the public participation in, in, in selecting your leaders, votes, voting, obviously. But the other is the liberal tradition, and liberal here meaning small l, 
the constitutional tradition, the tradition of protection of minorities, protection of individual rights, protection of property rights, protection of, uh, uh, you know, religious freedom, all of which in many ways predated voting by several centuries in the, in the West. I mean, Magna Carta is 1215, the, you know, the, the, the beginnings of the rule of law in, in places like Britain and, and France and the German provinces is certainly by the 17th, 18th centuries. And the point I was, I was trying to make was that in much of the world, what you see is the voting piece, but you don't see the liberal piece of, of liberal democracy. When you look at the United States, what you see, I think, is, is, is something um, similar, not, not as extreme, but that we're celebrating all the kind of electoral elements that is the voting and, and all that. But the inner stuffing of democracy, which has been um, a respect for democratic norms, a respect for the opposition, a respect for freedom of the press, that does seem to have eroded. And it seems to have eroded because under the, the assault of a kind of you know, mass populism, as I say, in our case, it's not entirely purely kind of legal. So, for example... The press is the only industry protected by the Constitution. And nowhere does it say in the Constitution, or there's no law that says that the President of the United States cannot call in the heads of all the networks and scream at them for two hours. But no president has ever done that because it has seen, been seen as an attempt to intimidate the press and to muzzle uh, the press. And people like Erdogan do it. But no American president has ever done it, even R Richard Nixon in his darkest days. And that's what Trump did. And, and and it's not just Trump, by the way. This is I think we've had these kind of erosions for a while. But Trump really represents a, a, a seeming uh, a lack of concern and disrespect for these norms that is worrying because it makes one realize when you look at many of these countries around the world, many of them had fine constitutions. Many of them had, had good laws. But the democratic culture got eroded by a lack of respect for norms, for rules, for behavior. And so what I worry about is if we have another four years of this or, you know, eight years of it, we will start the next presidency at a much lower level of respect for a lot of that inner stuffing that makes the, the liberal part of liberal democracy work. I've been speaking to Fareed Zakaria. He's the host of CNN's Fareed Zakaria GPS. Fareed, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon, who demands protection from the unfair trade practices of Pod Save America. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, and he's upset about dumping by the NPR Politics Podcast. Unfair. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He's enraged by 538's currency manipulation. Those guys have all the numbers. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. You know what he wants. He wants NBC to stop subsidizing Alec Baldwin. And I'm Jacob Weisberg, the only free trade advocate around here. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I am so excited to be doing the Trumpcast as the president for the very first time. Everything is going to be absolutely tremendous. It's going to be fantastic. I'm so happy that we had the single largest inauguration turnout in the history of inaugurations anywhere in the world, I found out.
And we had the single highest ratings of any television broadcast in the history of television. Even bigger than the Super Bowl, which honestly, I wanted to do the inauguration at the Super Bowl. I think it would have been terrific. Absolutely terrific. People would have loved it. Football, beer, jets, people singing. I would have really loved that. But the Democrats, the Democrats, terrible people, they push back. So we couldn't do it at the Super Bowl. But we did have the biggest in history. And that's what's the most important.